Hey, welcome to In The Shift, a podcast for when life and faith go off script. My name is Michael Frost. Welcome in for another episode of the podcast. Hope you're doing okay wherever you find yourselves at this time. We have had a busy week here in the Frost household. Uh, Our little baby boy, Rufus, has turned one just last week. Um, And so we've had parties and cakes coming out our ears. It's hard to believe uh, that it's a year already, and I suppose, I guess that's a thing most parents probably say. So if you've already, if you've done the parenting or doing it, you're probably like, yes, yes, it does, yes, uh, nothing new there. Um, but our memories are funny things, you know. I was just thinking about that this week. That from one angle, it feels like uh, this year has gone by so quickly, and then from another angle, it feels like it's always been this way, and I can't hardly remember what life was like before he turned up. So, um. Yes, it's it's. I'm I'm slightly uh, hungover on child party preparation, uh, not not literally hungover, uh, but children's party preparation and cake hungover. Uh, a lot of food coloring in those cake situations. Uh, so anyway, what I thought I'd do before we get into the content for today's episode, here are here are two reflections from my first year of parenting. Um, one is it's been beautiful to watch. Little little mate Rufus find joy in absolutely ordinary things, uh, and it's kind of reminded me of the joy in in the mundane. You know, um, even when he was a very small baby, and he was just you know when his sight was sort of growing, and he could suddenly see all the way to the wall, and he could see like the light on the wall, and it was just absolutely transfix, transfixing to him to see the light bend or the shadow flutter or whatever it might have been. Uh, and that level of wonder has continued for him throughout his first year as he discovers things. And it's kind of reminded me, I guess, of how much I take for granted and of how much I've kind of got, I get used to. And I think that's probably pretty normal. Um, but I've, in joining in with him, have experienced his wonder as my own in some kind of way at very ordinary uh, things and that's kind of beautiful and so that's been that's been a life lesson for me uh, this year uh, the second reflection um, is that fulfillment meaning and meaning perhaps meaning is a better word there is really not about convenience um, and perhaps that's you know a story that we get sold quite often is that sort of the most fulfilled life is the one where you make it as sort of convenient as possible by eliminating all of the work. And yet there's been something in this last year that has been hard work and not convenient from a certain perspective, but incredibly fulfilling, rewarding and meaningful. And so uh, it's another reminder to me that the point of life is not simply to eliminate uh, all of the inconvenient things because, in fact, it's in those inconvenient things where the meaning is found. So there we go. Look at that. I'm bringing profound reflections to you after a year of parenthood. Uh, obviously, after one year, we're very good at parenting now. We've clocked it, basically, and uh, foresee no issues ahead. <laughs> anyway, leave me in my bliss. Uh, let's get into our episode for today. And some of the things we want to talk about. If you tuned into the last episode, episode 31, then you will already know that we we are in a series of episodes uh, really just at the beginning of exploring the question of divine intervention. And 
It's a question that perhaps many people in the Christian tradition just take for granted. Well, of course, God is the kind of God who intervenes, and that's why we pray and so on, uh, and listen and look to God to do something, to act, to speak, whatever it might be. Um, But for many people, when they encounter some kind of question, maybe it arises from a crisis or some kind of personal disruption, or maybe it just arises through thoughtful reflection, uh, we find ourselves asking the question, can we actually believe in a God who gets involved like that, who speaks, who acts, who intervenes? Um, Or are there too many reasons to doubt that kind of God? If that's the case, then are we better to just move on from God altogether and leave that whole business behind? And I think people often find themselves landing in in this camp of sort of feeling like they have to cling to this particular notion of divine intervention despite all of the big questions it raises for them or, you know what, flag the whole thing and moving on. So uh, these are big and personal and theological and complicated questions. And uh, and so we want to pick our way through some of these. And some of the angles I think that the Christian tradition have come at this from have been problematic. They have been difficult. Um, They can kind of sound good when things are going okay. Um, I mean, a lot of things sound good and reasonable when when life is going okay um, because you don't necessarily have any reason to doubt it or even if you do doubt, it doesn't really matter too much because everything's fine. But when we run into those kind of moments of crisis or or genuine suffering of some kind, um, then, as I say, all sorts of problems in some of those fundamental or, or conventional frameworks can come to the surface and then what do we do with all of those as they start spinning around us. And sometimes, you know, one of the really painful things that people have to do is end up trying to say that God is good, even though their experience leads them to doubt that very reality. And so there's this inner turmoil going on of, I I don't know what to do with the suffering and pain that I'm experiencing, but then this external sense of, I've, I'm still supposed to say God is good and that God is in control and that God's got my best interests at heart. And so there can be this internal conflict that arises in these moments. Or, or maybe we just end up with God as a, some kind of absentee parent. So we're going to keep setting the scene for this conversation in today's episode uh, by exploring the related themes of sovereignty and suffering. Uh, You'll be able to tell I spend a lot of time in Pentecostal church because my two points begin with the same letter. Sovereignty and suffering. Um, But they are in fact related ideas because what we believe about the idea of a God who might be sovereign also relates to how we make sense of the very real suffering we can experience in our lives because we might want to ask the question, is God always in control? And if so, what does that mean? Uh, If God is sovereign like that, then does God make everything happen that happens? Or is God like a God who's in control but gives some level of freedom but also retains some control? And if so, how does that work and what are the rules around that? Um, Or maybe is, is the notion of sovereignty itself a problem? Are there different ways of thinking about God? And so these are big questions, and they intersect with our suffering, as I say, because they get to the heart of things like, why, what happened here? Did God do this to me? Or why didn't God stop this from happening? Or is God going to respond to my prayers? And so loads of questions spit out of this conversation. So let's dive in, try and make some sense of it. This is episode 32 of In The Shift. Let's get into it. <laughs>
Okay, so what I want to do in this episode is talk a little bit about how some versions of Christian faith have understood the idea of God as sovereign, and then connect that to the way this then frames up certain responses to the problem of suffering. Uh, and then perhaps towards the end of this episode, we'll see if we can make a, a couple of observations about this uh, and some future uh, possibilities, possible responses about where this conversation might take us going forward. So uh, let's start with pretty conventional views of God's sovereignty, I guess. And the idea of sovereignty, if you're not familiar with the language of sovereignty in relation to God, it really stems, I suppose, in its origins from notions of God as creator. And so if God is the creator of all things, then and all things come from God, then it stands to reason that God is then, in some respects, some way, sovereign over that creation. Uh, and we also find in the biblical stories, for example, uh, one of the, the big metaphors that's often used for God is this idea of God as king. And so you have the idea of kingdom, you have the idea of God having a sort of a dominion or sovereignty over God's kingdom, which in this case includes all of reality. Uh, and so that's kind of the essential logic of, of sovereignty in, in a, a kind of rudimentary or basic sense. If God is created, then God is the one who is all-powerful and sovereign over all that God has made. Uh, and so you find this idea throughout certain biblical texts, these sort of acclaims of the sovereignty of God, and, and, and that often forms a part of the worship uh, narratives and the worship poems and the worship songs and prayers of uh, the sacred texts of the, the Jewish and Christian tradition. Um, we also find that, that some of, I think, the Christian notions of sovereignty that sort of come into being in the early centuries of the Christian tradition are also shaped uh, in some ways by the Greek philosophical, philosophical concepts of God. We mentioned this in the last episode, so if you if you feel like you're like, what are, what are you talking about there? Then you can go back and, and touch up on that. But um, essentially, Greek philosophical notions of of the divine or of God are a God as the supreme and unchanging one who is you know who is perfect and who cannot be tainted or corrupted or affected or impacted by anything uh, in reality, and so. Um, all of that lends itself to this kind of supreme, sovereign being, this God, um, and and therefore God in some respects is seen to be all-powerful. Uh, often we use the word uh, omnipotent to describe that notion of being all-powerful. And, um, and, you know, as a, as a little kid, I remember... <laughs> Um, the classic philosophical question that, that arose at school, if God's all-powerful, then can he make a rock so big that he can't lift it? Uh, you know, and, and me coming up with some great answer to that about two days after on <laughs> after it got thrown at me on the playground. Um, but what that question says to us, other than being a slightly silly philosophical play, um it highlights to us that that we have questions around what it means to say God is all powerful, um, and and traditionally notions of sovereignty have often collided with something called providence as well. So you know, if in your spare time uh, you've been reading the Heidelberg Catechism of fifteen sixty three, and uh, and I know some of you out there, gosh, you'd just you'd grab a copy of that, wouldn't you? Um, and this is. This is a document, uh, a kind of a, a theological and spiritual formation document that emerges uh, in the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century. Um, 
And there's very strong views of God's sovereignty and perhaps as a pushback against the authority and hierarchy of the Catholic Church that the Protestant Reformation is reacting against. So the sovereignty of God becomes kind of paramount at this point in history and has remained so within certain streams of the evangelical and and Protestant traditions. Um, But in this Heidelberg Catechism, 1563, I I say that again because I know you'll want to just look it up and tuck yourself into bed tonight with a copy. Uh, They talk about the notion of providence in relation to sovereignty. And so they define providence here uh, as the almighty and ever-present power of God, whereby he still upholds, as it were, by his own hand, heaven and earth together with all creatures, and rules in such a way that leaves and grass, rain and drought, fruitful and unfruitful years, food and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, and everything else come to us not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. Now, um, other than the very masculine language, for God that's used here, which is not unusual for this time and place. Um, You can see here these connections between sovereignty and this notion of providence. And uh, it's this kind of framework that gives us the God is in control kind of motif in the Christian tradition. And I don't know if you've bumped into that God is in control kind of language, but um, it's obviously, it can be, And I think it's intended to be incredibly reassuring to us. And even within this quote here, the idea is that this is something reassuring that tells us, hey, no matter what's going on in your life, God is in control and is actually orchestrating uh, all that is taking place. Now, that can be comforting uh, to people who hear that in a certain kind of framework or in a certain kind of way. And maybe don't ask certain questions of it. And, and you know, I don't want to disparage those for whom that's comforting, but I know there are many of those for whom there's something also problematic about this. While it sounds quite lovely and God's loving fatherly hand upholds all things and everything comes to us by God's hand, um, there's, there's cause for concern here because apparently God's loving and fatherly hand, which is responsible for fruitfulness and food and health and riches, That same fatherly hand is also providing us or responsible for drought and unfruitfulness and sickness and poverty. And so what do we do with that? Is that a legitimate way of thinking about God? Is this in fact true? I guess that's one question we could ask. Is it in fact comforting? Um, I'm not so sure that it always is. And And so there's a a bunch of questions that emerge as soon as we start talking about this idea of whether or not God is sovereign, all-powerful, and whether uh, reality in this sense is providential, whether it all comes to us from God's hand in this kind of way. Uh, And and one of the theological terms that's associated with this conversation is the term theodicy. So so if you're tracking with our terms here. Um, Theodicy is essentially... Uh, the theological word for the task of trying to deal with the intersecting claims of a good, loving, and all-powerful God with the reality of suffering and evil in the world. Um, So theodicy is what we call the attempt to try and negotiate that conversation. You've got apparently a good, loving God who is all-powerful, and then you also have the presence of pain, evil, suffering, um, what do we do with that seeming contradiction? Um, if God is loving and all-powerful, then wouldn't God stop the pain and the suffering that we experience? 
Um, and so there's this kind of conundrum that arises in the theological conversations, and not just in universities and academic houses where people discuss theological things, but even though this has got a set of kind of theological terms for it, this is the kind of conversation that hits people hard in the gut all the time when they encounter the realities of their lived lives, right? So I want to keep reminding us of that, I guess, because there's a tendency amongst theologians to have these conversations in very abstract and philosophical terms, forgetting that everybody's wrestling with these questions in their own way. Okay, so let's circle back around to sovereignty then uh, and think about a couple of different ways in which that's approached uh, before we get on to how we deal with suffering. Oh, what a cheery, cheery time. So um, so one of the ways in which uh, uh, certain streams within the Christian tradition have um, outworked this notion of sovereignty is all the way through to um, something called predestination. So uh, this is particular pop- particularly popular with Calvinists. Uh, Calvinists is a stream of Christianity that connects to the famous reformer and theologian of the 16th century, John Calvin, hence Calvinists. And, uh, and for Calvin and for Calvinists in general, I think, God's sovereignty is paramount. The, the theological framework is built in many respects on preserving these notions of God's sovereignty and power. And if God is sovereign and in control and all-powerful, then surely everything that happens only happens because God uh, deems or wills it to happen. Because surely if anything was to happen that God did not want to happen, that would damage or dent God's all-powerful sovereignty. And so um, so in this kind of Calvinist predestination model, essentially to say that God is sovereign must be to say that everything that happens has been determined already in advance by God to happen because God must be in control of all things, therefore determines all things that happen. Therefore, the future is kind of set in that sense. We are predestined uh, to play out a certain kind of story because God has already determined it in advance because God is sovereign. Yeah? I hope that makes sense to you. Now, uh, this gets a little bit trippy within certain Calvinist ways of understanding things Uh, because when you put it together with the kind of salvation and then the heaven-hell framework as as well, it becomes incredibly potent, right? Because essentially God has to choose who is saved from eternity and hell and who gets to go to heaven because nothing can happen that God has not determined, which means that God chooses some, uh, often called the elect, to be saved and ultimately get to heaven. And then the flip side of that is uh, something that's sometimes called double predestination, um, is when God, therefore, if God is choosing those who are going to get saved from eternal damnation and hell to get to heaven, then God is also, by implication, choosing those who will not be saved and will end up in some kind of hell forever. Uh, And so you end up with... Uh, The starting place of God's sovereignty, which must mean in in this framework that everything that happens happens because God wants it to happen. Uh, And you end up, because of that starting point, with God essentially choosing ahead of time, before all time, uh, which people God creates will end up in heaven and which people God creates will end up in hell. And so in certain versions of this kind of Calvinist doctrine, Jesus really only dies for those whom God has chosen 
to go to heaven one day. So, uh, you can see how the logic kind of starts with sovereignty and ends up with these very real theological implications for the way we see one another. Uh, and quite aside from the heaven and hell conversation and what you think about that, and I've already done some episodes on heaven and hell and stuff, so um, we won't get into that here. But so, so quite aside from that, you, you have a framework that says that God's control over every action and reaction is total. God is sovereign. God is in control to the smallest degree. Uh, and of course, there's challenges with that because it implicates God in um, disaster and pain and suffering in our lives because God has determined for that to be the case. Now, within the Protestant tradition, you have this kind of corresponding view, the Arminian view, it's sometimes called. Don't worry about the names too much. Um, where God's sovereignty is, is retained, uh, or at least they attempt to retain God's sovereignty in a traditional sense. But as a part of God's sovereignty, uh, humankind is provided with the freedom to make choices. And so this is the, the classic free will versus predestination conversation, which is ultimately a, a discussion about God's sovereignty and what that sovereignty means. And so in an Arminian view, human beings are free to choose uh, the course of their own lives, including their decision to respond or not to the Christian message and therefore get to heaven or whatever when they die. Now, I've obviously got, and, and you'll know if you've listened to uh, much of this podcast, some problems with the overall salvation framework uh, of both of these uh, um, streams of thought. right? But what you're seeing here is a conversation playing out really around what does it mean to say that God is sovereign? And one, everything happens because God is sovereign and therefore uh, it all comes under his dominion, power and rule and therefore God has determined it all Will happen that way. And the other God is sovereign but has given a level of freedom to human creatures to make choices. So in both cases we end up we still end up with questions of theodicy, right? In the first camp, uh, we kind of have the God is ultimately the causer of those bad things, even if not directly. Um, and that's a problem. I, I think it should be a problem. Um, and what often ends up happening there is we say, well, God is allowed to do bad things because they're not bad if God does them because God is by definition good. <laughs> and so if God is by definition good, then even if it looks bad, it must be good somehow. Um, but that kind of makes a mockery out of the meaning of goodness itself. Um, so we've got a, I've got a problem with that framework. And then the second, God gives freedom to people. And so maybe we can get our heads around God allowing people to make harmful choices. You know, maybe we can say, all right, so God has given human creatures uh, freedom, which means that, you know, I have the freedom to go and punch my enemy in the face. And because God has given that freedom to me, uh, that will cause pain and suffering, but it's because of my freedom rather than because of something God specifically has done. But you do still have God allowing that to happen. And uh, and then much more than that, perhaps, and, and more difficult to grapple with is what about tsunamis and earthquakes and cancer? Because what's going on there, that's not some kind of free choice of somebody to um, do something in particular. 
tsunamis and earthquakes and cancer and sickness and all of this are simply features of the world that we live in. And is God sovereign over those? Um, So I think sometimes um, maybe it's easier to make sense of the suffering we inflict on one another. But some of the suffering we experience in the midst of just the world that we inhabit uh, is really hard for us to get our heads around. And so this is the problem of theodicy. This is the problem of suffering and pain in light, in, in light of the belief of in a, in a good and all-powerful God. Um, so there are, three, there are three general answers given to this uh, within the Christian tradition, to this question of theodicy. Why is there pain and suffering if God is good? Um, and I'm going to be honest with you, none of these three really do it for me, but I'm going to give them to you anyway because uh, they come up a lot. Right, so the first kind of answer that Christians give to the why is their pain and suffering um, is that God is a mystery. God's impossible to understand. Uh, God is sovereign and God must have a greater plan that we cannot see uh, and so we simply have to trust. Accept your pain. Accept your suffering. You can't blame God because God's ways are higher than your ways. And you just have to know that God has a better plan, that He that God is outworking. Um, so there's kind of a mystery to the whole thing. I guess there's 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 problems with this for me, though, and I'm not sure that's a satisfactory answer. I'm not sure that we can just play the mystery card like that. Um, and, you know, surely that this, this sort of paints God as the ultimate kind of means to an end kind of God, right? Because this kind of God where we can say, look, God's ways are higher than our ways and God just has a, has a plan that you can't see. Well, this kind of God's plan involves a whole lot of pain and suffering in order to get to a particular place that God wants to get to. So um, surely there would be a better way than that if God is truly good and all-powerful and loving. Um, and look, it's just, it's just not that uh, comforting to hear when you're in the midst of great pain that, oh, God's got a plan, you know, you just don't know what, you just can't see it yet. Uh, maybe that works for kind of, oh, man, I tried, you know, I applied for that job and I didn't get it. Uh, that At that level of kind of pain and suffering, I think God is a mystery or God's ways are higher or God has a plan. You know, maybe that does work in kind of a comforting sense. But I'm not sure when you encounter real tragedy that it actually cuts it. I'm not sure it really does the job. So that's the, but that's the first kind of one, right? And and that's, I guess, the go-to when you don't quite know what else to say. Um, but you have God planning all sorts of terrible stuff, if that's the case. All right, the second is that pain and suffering in some kind of way is punishment for disobedience. So rather than God is just a mystery and we don't know why these things happen, but it's all part of some greater plan. Uh, The punishment for disobedience framework kind of says these things are happening to you because you've done something bad. I guess this is the kind of 
the Christian version of, of karma. And you see this actually, uh, the Old Testament in the Christian scriptures is, it's not just one document. There are lots of different things being said by lots of different authors over a very long period of time. And there's actually multiple streams of thought that run through it. Uh, there's arguments and conversations and discussions about what God is really like and, and a whole wrestling with that conversation. But one of the threads that does go throughout the Old Testament texts is this idea that somehow the, the, the pain and suffering that people are experiencing is because they have been disobedient at some point. And and this goes back to some texts in the in the in the Torah, in um, the book of Deuteronomy, where, you know, if you do these things, you'll be blessed, but if you do these things, then you'll be cursed. Uh, and at times within the history of uh, the Jewish people, they interpret their own history in that light. Ah, the reason our city was destroyed was because we were terrible uh, people, because we were unfaithful, because we were sinners, whatever it might be. Um, and and again, this is a this is a way of thinking about pain and suffering that isn't just back then for those people, but still remains present for people now. What did I do to deserve this? Did I, you know, did I not get something right? Did I not pray hard enough? Did I not show enough devotion? Did I not give enough? Uh, was I too um, naughty, <laughs> sinful? Did I think the wrong thoughts? Uh, what did I do that has given rise to? Maybe the sickness that I carry or that my loved ones carry. You know, so um, that kind of mentality sits deep within the bones of many religious people. I'm experiencing pain and suffering and it must have been something I've done. Now, again, one of my concerns, or the many concerns I have with this kind of rationale, um, but certainly as, a, as someone who still sees themselves within the Christian tradition, um, that's not the kind of story or message or narrative I see playing out in in Jesus. Uh, and that Jesus didn't seem to go around telling people, oh, yes, you're, you're sick. Well, that's, that's, that's because you're a sinner. Um, <laughs> all your parents were, you know. That's not the story we see in the story of Jesus. And I don't think that's the intention Um of the Christian narrative. And in fact, I think even within the Old Testament, you see people pushing back, some of the authors and writers and prophets pushing back against some of those notions of ways of understanding God. Right, so we have the sort of, the God is a mystery, uh, God's ways are higher, God's got a greater plan, but you can't see it. Uh, and there are some problems with that. And then we've got the punishment for disobedience one. And there are some problems with that, not least of which we often tend not just to see our own um, suffering as punishment for our disobedience, but to see others uh, suffering as punishment for their disobedience. And so you get people piping up and saying, oh, the earthquake happened over there because there were some sinners in the city. Um, and that's deeply problematic for me. All right, the third is suffering is there to teach us, um, you know, that we're to learn a lesson through our suffering. And again, look, this, might, this, this kind of works for some minor sufferings. If we, can, if we, can, um, if we were able to uh, do a, draw a graph for our sufferings, I feel like at some of the lower end sufferings, you know, because often the example is given of, you know, if you're a parent, uh, you know that you have to discipline your child or you have to, and they might experience it as suffering, but in the long term, it's there to teach them. So you say, look, don't run across the road, and they might really want to run across the road. 
And so they experience your command as suffering or your instruction as suffering, but actually you're teaching them about safety. You know, And it's just like that with God. Right, so that, that kind of works, maybe that works well for, um, again, kind of minor discomfort that we might experience. Uh, but I know that as a parent, that metaphor really breaks down when I think, oh, yes, I'm going to give my child this incurable disease as a way of teaching them an important lesson about trust. I would never do that. Of course I would never do that. And if I wouldn't do that, then what are we saying about God if we're, if we're trying to say that God would do that? And so each of these three answers, which have been historically three of the big ways of trying to deal with the question of why do we suffer if God is good, that these, these three all fall short and and break apart when they're pushed and prodded too much. When you pull that little thread of doubt, uh, the whole thing starts to unravel. So what do we do with this? Well, in a a sense, I guess that's a part of why we're doing this series, uh, to try and come up with some better answers to these questions. And um, Daniel Migliore, who's a a great theologian, suggests, uh, you know, he talks about the idea that, that God's sovereignty and power, if we're going to think about God being sovereign, and, you know, look, I think we still have to work our way through that idea and what we might mean by it. Um, But if God is powerful, but if God is also love, then God's power must be defined by love rather than the other way around. So rather than just starting to try with, trying to start, excuse me, with absolute power and dominion and then moving our way to sort of how does that work out when God tries to be loving, we start with love and let love itself define what divine kind of power, for want of a better word, looks like. And so uh, what Midliora says is that in this sense, then God chooses to deal with suffering and with pain and with evil through love rather than through force or coercion, coercion or just making things happen or stop happening. So he says this, God... Uh, does indeed rule and overrule the events of each human life in all of history, uh, but it's through the power of sacrificial love uh, that is stronger than death. Right, so here, instead of uh, seeking to rule via power over, the ruling is through sacrificial love that gives itself up for the other. Now, this doesn't provide a clear-cut answer to fix all our problems either, but maybe it does at least provide a starting point for a different kind of conversation. And one of the things we've seen in the past century is is that this conversation is starting to go in some different ways that offer us some interesting, some some alternative uh, paths forward other than those three kind of well-worn but problematic um, theodicy answers. Um, so through, you know, in particular, the theology of people like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a theologian, German theologian, um, during the Second World War. Jürgen Moltmann, who's one of the leading 20th century uh, theologians, still going actually in his 90s now. Both of them really reclaim for us this notion of the suffering God, you know, that God, in fact, rather than being a far off looking down and saying, oh dear, it looks like things are going very badly for you. I might intervene from time to time, but I'm just, I'm sort of, I'm going to let the, let the rest happen. Um, they, instead, they instead suggest that no, God chooses to suffer with us. And so Moldman has this, you know, be- quite beautiful piece of theology about uh, Jesus on the cross 
And when the Christ experiences this moment of forsakenness, you know, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That God, the divine, in some ways entering into our suffering, even to the point of experiencing what it feels like to be forsaken by God. So God becomes present in a profound way to us in our pain and suffering. And so again, I think perhaps this is, this doesn't answer all our problems either, but it's an interesting rabbit hole to go down, to chase and say, where does this conversation take us? Now, we might want to ask the question, what do we do? If God is present to us in our suffering, and even we might say suffers alongside us or in solidarity with us, well, is that enough? Is presence enough? Is that all we get? Is God just with us? And if that's like nice to have someone with us, <laughs> nice to have God with us, but is there more than that? Um, if God is just with us in our pain, is that enough itself either? Uh, and what does that mean for sort of the, the way that we pray? And, and what does it actually mean to say that God is present with us? And I don't just mean in a theological sense, in some kind of abstract, um, you know, pithy saying. I mean, what does that actually mean for you, <laughs> for us, to say that God is present with us in solidarity with our pain? Does that mean anything in real life? Right, so all of these questions continue to come up for us. And at this point in the conversation, I think uh, what I hope we're hitting is a pushback against some of these traditional ways of making sense of suffering. Uh, and then also raising some questions about just what it means to even say that God is sovereign at all. I think that question has to come up for us. If God is love, for example, then what does it mean for God to be in control over other beings? Is that even loving? So maybe we need to reframe our definitions around God <laughs> and sovereignty. Uh, maybe the whole conversation needs to be rebooted with some different frameworks in mind and some different definitions to work with. And so uh, perhaps that's where we're going to take the conversation over the next little while. Now, if you listen to the last episode, you may notice that uh, what we're talking about here is kind of complementary to those categories of classical theism and panentheism that we mentioned as well in the previous episode. Um, and so you're going to see the intersecting of these ideas as we work our way along. So there's still so many questions, which is why this is going to be a long series. Uh, so stick with me. I hope you can. Thanks again to Rhys Michel for his miracle working powers on massaging the sound and audio experience in your ears. I hope you can tune in next time as we continue to unpack this question of divine intervention on In The Shift. <laughs>